Stories. Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. I am Dawn. I'm Anna Deshawn. We're here with our guest today. We have Incheto Chukul Azokoli, Incheto for short, was born in Nigeria, but grew up in California. They're both parts a creative healer and a visionary leader with a deep focus on health and well-being, community, and art. In their free time, they write poetry and stories, engage in community and the arts, explore healing modalities, hang with their two kittens, and hang around the people they love, exploring the complexities of the world. They recently graduated with their Master of Public Health degree in Global Health at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health with a focus on community health and development. Incheto currently works as a healthcare strategy consultant. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Happy you're here. I'm so happy you're here. Happy and you to be here. Just listening to your bio, you've got lots of identities. But here is the question. Yes. What identities do you feel most influence your experiences? So it's probably as many identities in my bio, <laughs> but I'll, I'll break that down. Yeah. Um, so I think what most influences my identities, of course, being queer, you know, being non-binary and having that kind of in the forefront as I move through the world and navigate it, um, as well as being a black person, um, coming from this dual background of being Nigerian, but being raised in America and predominantly like African-American community and how that kind of led to this, I'd like to say triple consciousness of being. And I say something else that really highlights or plays into my identity are my backgrounds just related to being, again, first-generation American, but also um, coming from like a low-income background and community and, and experiencing that. Absolutely. And so when you have multiple identities and you live at these intersections, oftentimes, depending upon where you're at, what the conversation is, people want to make one identity more important than the other. Do you feel like there's a hierarchy of any of your identities, or do you feel like they're all just equally important to me and I am who I am? Yeah, so I, I'd say each are important because they kind of touch different facets of life and, and how I move through the world. So I can't say that one in particular is more important. Um, it's just that in certain moments, one might be more salient. So I know you're a recent Chicagoan now. Can I call mm -hmm. you that? You've been yes. here for a little bit. So have you noticed any shifts of, like you said, like these identities come forward depending on where you're at and how you move about in the world? Coming from Atlanta to Chicago, have you noticed that that changed at all in terms of moving about these very different cities? Yeah, so when I was in Atlanta, I was in grad school. So that just being there was a very different experience. It wasn't like I was kind of living a day-to-day -day life. I was in school. And so with that, I didn't have as much opportunity to really explore the queer culture, queer identity um, that I wanted to. Um, in, Atlanta? in Atlanta? I know. It I, is I was, so I was, gay. It's very gay. And like, I definitely did a lot, but uh -oh. I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I made community ties in oh, that sense. It was the wow. grad school life. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Campus be, life. Exactly. I get it. Right. But so, it's so gay. It, it very is. <laughs> right. I definitely explored that. Okay. Um, and it was great. But I think moving to at Chicago, now that I've kind of settled in and there's like a workflow and I have a mm -hmm. schedule, I've been doing more in terms of exploring those communities and what they mean to me. And 
I think for myself that I see that change in how I interact and who I choose to interact with. I'm very pro and and hanging out with, you know, black and brown queer folks and kind of using those people to kind of bolster my sense of community and belonging here. So that's something I've I've noticed in terms of that change and being more secure in that identity of, of mm-hmm. being a queer non-binary person because I find myself around other queer non-binary black folks too. Where in Chicago have you found community? Like, where did you go? I'm where listening did I to go? yeah, I'm listening to this podcast. I'm <laughs> queer, and I don't know right. where the hell to go. Where you find people, friends, <laughs> like-minded? Right. So I'd say there's a lot of queer groups and collectives that are doing like amazing, amazing um, event curation across the city. So I I could definitely list them. Come on, um, what so you got? I, I'd say for the party circuit, you know, there's of course you know Swoon and Slow Mo. Those are monthly. There's Energy every week at Tantrum Bar. There's the Black and Brown Babes Brunch, which is hosted monthly. Um, that's not necessarily you know it's not a ten to two a.m. It's more of like a five to ten. Mm-hmm. That's um, my speed, everybody. Right, just right, want you to right. know. Ten. The five to ten. We need definitely need more of those. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been going to a lot of sh- queer shows. So there's also, you know, there's always um, an open mic. I know the, uh, was it Southwest Asian and North African Swana? There's, that's another group that just started. They opened and hosted a open mic. Um, and there's like a lot of cool comedy, stand up, mm-hmm. queer arts things going on in the city. And that's so impressive because you've been here six months and uh, you yeah. like dove right in I really and you came myself. after summer was pretty much over. So that's an impressive yeah. list. I, I put put myself out there. So like, <laughs> I'm going to find this community. Let's go all in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love it. So tell us a little bit about how you became interested in public health and what that passion is all about for you. Right. So I found public health through kind of my path as a pre-med medicine track person. So I thought I was going to be a doctor for the longest time. You couldn't tell me I was not going to be some sort of like pediatric cardiologist or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And eventually uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, I think my first year, I had a summer internship at Columbia School of Public Health. And so it was my first introduction to public health and what it was about. Um, And eventually as I kind of got more experience in public health throughout the years, whether it was research in undergrad um, or through my studies in community health, I realized I was very interested in kind of that the population aspect of health. And not that you can't do that with medicine, um, but medicine's more of that one-to-one individual focus. And I was really interested in impacting communities mm-hmm. and the health of communities and mm-hmm. the, the communities I was interested in. Yeah. So I spent some time in the School of Public Health at UIC for some time years ago in the Center for the Advancement of Distance Education, where we were doing a lot around mass suspension of drugs in the case of an emergency. How do we reach a lot of people to affect a change, but using technology Mm -hmm. um, to do that? I'm interested in like when we look at your perspective and what how you want to impact people uh, with public health. Are there any intersections around media and technology that's happening today that you find yourself sort of immersed in? Or is it just, that's just because I'm something I'm interested in. Is that something that uh, finds itself inside your work? Yeah, so media and technology and public health. Well, I, an undergrad, studied like science, technology, and society and its effects on life sciences and health. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I was doing in undergrad was looking at different ways that you can kind of 
input technology and into the health fields and into healthcare. So kind of moving forward with that, that's kind of always like, you know, technology in, in public health and health in general has always been an interest of mine, um, something I'm interested in studying. And although like in my public health career, as like in my grad school, I didn't really do much in that. Right now, there's opportunity like in my job as a consultant to do some work in like that digital health space. So whether it's like telehealth, providing healthcare opportunities through television, you know, those are type, type, the type of like intersections between those public health, um, healthcare, and technology. I think that are kind of coming out, especially with communities like rural communities or communities who don't have access to mm-hmm. care. Yeah, and is there anything in particular? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a particular uh, disease or ailment or circumstance or situation that you're really looking to make a big impact in that you feel like is really at the crux of a need for the communities that you care about most? Right. Yeah. So I'd say for myself, there are kind of three areas of focus that I am most interested in. So one of them is, of course, black women's health and women's health in general and the second one is like health systems on a larger basis. So these systems of health and healthcare, how do we kind of change that for folks and make that better? And then the third one is kind of tackling more of like a social determinants of health piece and background. So my background in, in the grad school is actually global health focus. So I like to focus nationally, I like to focus globally and kind of the interplay between those. So I say those three areas are kind of been a theme throughout my time. All of that definitely needed in Chicago, right? I feel like we're lucky to have you in our city now because there's so much work to be done in all those areas here, for sure. I'm definitely lucky to be here. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So we're edging up on story time here. All right. So let us know what you have for us today. I'd love to hear the story you have and happy you're here to share it with us. Yes. The title of this story is called A Year of Return. I needed time to think, to gather my thoughts and compose myself for the inevitable conversation or multiple ones that I knew I would face about my sexuality. For the request of my time and efforts delineated to me solely because I had the oldest uterus amongst my siblings, for the toxicity that would seep through sentences directed at me from family. It had been four years since I allowed myself the experience of living under the same roof as my born family. Four years since I've slept in the same walls that housed the memories and growing pains of a younger version of me. A me that used to be called she. I'd often sequester myself into an Airbnb or hotel despite the strain and costs when I would visit home because home would trigger depression and anxiety in me. So I'd merely drop in for an hour or so to send my greetings never long enough to feel the walls closing in around me when I visited. It's been four years since I decided to leave those same walls and find my truth. Since I needed time to think with more time than the hectic, chaotic process of flying would provide, more distractions than clouds glimpsed from a plane's window could give, slow travel was the answer to this dilemma. So for 55 hours, I sat on the Amtrak California Zephyr train starting in Chicago, winding my way through the flat plains of Iowa, moving through the mountains of Colorado, the heart of the Rockies, the snow-capped Sierra Nevada, to find myself in the rolling hills of California, Sacramento to be exact, and finally arriving in Emeryville. 
this would be a year of return home, a year to commemorate and stand present in the fullness of my being. I was ready to finally return unabashed, unnervingly, and without fear of retribution or rebuke, ready to return in my full self, uncloaked of shame, shed of the shackles of oppressive religion, family expectations, and culture, and most importantly, steeped in self-love and acceptance. This is that story. As the Amtrak pulled into the Emeryville station, I finished the last of my preparations that I needed to finally see my family as the queer non-binary person that I am. I have finished ordering a variety of weed products to help soothe my nerves and relax me should I need it over the time period, and I contacted my brother who'd be picking me up from the station. While this leg of the journey had just ended, another had begun. As I left the train car where I had just spent 55 hours, the crisp Bay Area air filled my lungs and propelled me forward. I made it to the front of the station where people milled around and waited. There were the Amish folks whose livelihoods intrigued me with the telltale signs of the bonnets covering the women's heads, the exhausted parents trying to get their children to settle down, the man who paced back and forth with agitation muttering under his breath. Finally, my brother pulled up and I hopped into the car. I sat on the short ride home looking through the window at wonder at the changes in the city. Modern homes and chick coffee bars were open where local stores such as beauty salons and barber shops had previously existed. Before I could deeply contemplate the effects of gentrification in the community, we pulled up to my childhood home. Nothing and everything had changed. The old fence was falling apart after years had made the wood soft. The same car was parked in the garage where years had worn the paint off the hood. When I stepped into the house, the spices of my mom's cooking filled the air, the same spices I've smelled for years growing up. I walked towards the kitchen where I knew I'd find her and steeled myself. I wasn't sure if my sexuality was enough to warrant a cold greeting or none at all. Surprisingly, she greeted me warmly, as if the weekly Bible verses that she flooded my inbox with when I was away, Bible verses filled with God's wrath on the sinful, were to be shelved away in my presence. I was the prodigal child who had returned home. I knew, however, it was only a matter of time until what she saw was my sinful sexuality would come up and she would learn that I had not in fact returned to the family, but to myself. It would be three days into this trip when this would occur. My mother hadn't spoken to me about my sexuality, so I knew she must have been saving the conversation for the end. Up until this point, I am transported to the past and to my childhood growing up in a Nigerian household. My mother's evil Christian music, praising God, fills the corners of the home, reminding me of Sundays where church was a staple in my life. These days, Sundays are restorative moments spent in the comfort of bed. My God encourages rest. I'm transported back by the photos on the wall. These photos are of me, but not me. I used my English name then, using she, her pronouns. During time where I was forever preoccupied with performing a level of femininity that would grant me access to womanhood, a concept that felt foreign to me. The longer I stayed home, I reflect on these thoughts. Back then I was she, and I had left home a woman. And now I am they, embracing being non-binary, 
a truer version of myself. And so it was on my last day of my trip home, I'd be finally faced with a conversation that lingered in the back of my mind, laid the atmosphere thick with tension between my mother and I. A conversation where my identity would be questioned and my being denigrated. I was in my sister's room, packing up my suitcase when I heard my mother calling me. Ada, Ada ne, her voice carried from downstairs in the living room where she watched TV. Coming, I quipped back, knowing the time had finally come. I made my way downstairs, repeating to myself a few motivational phrases. Speak your truth, be open and honest, accept no disrespect, and stay calm, interspersed between, you got this. By the second round of repeating these phrases, I had found myself next to her and gave her a good look over. She had cut off her waist-length locks that had cradled her face, and I could tell she was getting older. The gray hairs had bloomed across her short hair, and I had no longer saw her through the veneer of wonder and authority I had as a child. She was human, fallible, and imperfect. She pulled me closer. Come here, my child. We missed you. By we, I knew she meant she missed me. I knew regardless of what would come next, she loved me. Even if her actions and her words weren't always healthy, she loved in her own way. But depending on this conversation, I was ready to love her from afar if needed. Often is the case with queer non-binary children, I think. Having to love from afar so we don't get scarred by those who should love us unconditionally. My mother goes on to explain her love of children, her desire for grandchildren, my need to be with a man, which transitions to the statement I knew would come. You are deceiving yourself, my child. My mind spun. She couldn't conceive of my queer identity intermingling with that of a parent, for parenthood only existed within the dichotomy of heterosexual relationships. She went on to say, that my queerness was a deception that fooled me into believing that dating woman to be okay. But there was hope for me yet. Coming back to the Lord would save me from my assured damnation. I tried to remain calm as I listened to these statements, but I knew it was time to assert myself. Growing up in a Nigerian household, raised voices were as common as ants in a grassy field. So my voice rose with passion and vibrated with exuberance. With a quickened heart and a tight chest, my voice rang out. This is me. I am queer. I will end up with a woman and this will not change. I'm not your daughter, but I am still your child. You can choose to accept me or not, but I choose happiness. I choose me. My words had no impact, and she continued onwards, explaining how it was her duty as my parent to steal me away from hell. The conversation had reached an impasse as I became more upset at her words, and she became committed to her message. There was no point in going further, and so I quickly ended the conversation, went upstairs, and gave myself the biggest internal hug I could, and then started to roll a joint.
I had a lot to process. As I leave the home to take a walk and smoke, I think of how my mother's words had crushed me. They hurt. As my feet walk the same streets I've traveled on since I was a child, it dawned on me that the point of my year of return was not to return back to my family, but back to myself. I had spoken my truth, I had been open and honest, and although I did not remain calm, I demanded the respect I deserved. The conversation with my mother left me feeling drained, yet firm in who I was. The consequence of being unapologetic of my truth was the absence of true acceptance from my parent, but my life was my own. As I finished a joint, I turned around to begin walking back. As I walked, I knew when the next morning's sun had risen, I'd be on my way back to Chicago, flying this time. I would return back to the life I had created for myself, a life of those who love and accept me, a life with a created family, a new one. By the time I would be back in Chicago and settled in, it would be a new year bringing to a close my year of return. Thank you. That was very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for having me. I had this image mm -hmm. as you were speaking of this like painting of your metamorphosis of coming into your identity and yourself. I love the way you just painted that so clearly for us. Yes, thanks for uh, listening and allowing me to share this story. And you're right. I mean, the story of coming back home, being queer, being clear in your identity, many of us have those same stories. But there's so many people who still have yet to have those conversations, right, right. with their own parents. So tell us, what has been the, what was the journey from I left home, then I came back home, but what work did you do mm -hmm. in between those times to be able to have the courage to sort of to find your voice in that moment with your mother? Yeah. So I think the, the work I needed to do was to first separate myself from my family. Um, a lot of my identity was kind of wrapped up in who they thought I was and who I should be. So I know I needed to remove myself and, and kind of be able to stand on my two legs outside of who they thought and projected on me. I, I definitely <laughs> went to therapy. <laughs> hello um, to therapy. Hello to therapy. It will yes. save yes. your life. So important. <laughs> Come through. Um, and I think a lot of that work was starting to find folks who were like me, who I felt I could connect to, who shared similar identities that I could, I, I could feel as if they got me and if they could survive having gone through their own stories and experience in this world, then I could too. So I mean, a lot of the work I, I had to do with that was knowing that I wanted a future where I could sit here in the seat today and be like, I am queer and I'm non-binary. Um, and then finding folks who could help support that and then doing that personal work on my own as well to kind of come to that understanding and self-acceptance and eventual, eventually self-love. I came out to my mom actually a year before I went home, and that was a, <laughs> a disaster. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I knew that if anything were to change in that relationship, it would just take time. Yeah. But that was time I was also going to give myself to be solid in who I was. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think sometimes um, we have to give our parents some grace around the time that they need when I think about the time that I needed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to feel comfortable to even say it. Right, right giving my parents the same amount of time, if not more time, (laughs) um, you know, to get to that same place. And I think uh, it is quite the journey. Right. I'm interested about your brother. (laughs) I don't know if you have other siblings, family. What does that look like? So I actually have a twin brother. So there's there's five, six of us. I have a twin brother. And then I have four other, five other siblings. Um, four who are currently kind of in the home and then one who's not. And then there's me. I think being the eldest daughter, especially in an Igbo Nigerian household, has always there's always been a level of responsibility on my shoulders because I've kind of been dubbed the second mom. So my siblings are, when it comes to my, like, my identity has been, they've been great. They've been supportive. And they haven't shown me love. Like and nothing else other than love. So, um, but because I've, I I am the like the eldest, and my kind of setting that that example of like it's okay to be yourself and 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 say this is who you are. You don't have to. You causing all types of problems. I, I am. <laughs> you know, we're trying to heal past trauma here. Come on, come so through. important. So yes, um, just like just family structure in general, though. Like it, it, it grew up in a very dysfunctional home, very toxic in a lot of ways, and. I think like stepping into my identity has been a way of healing through what I experienced as a kid and that programming you kind of receive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, yeah, my siblings are great and they're they're great with me. They love me, but I know like my parents and, and the background they come from being raised in Nigeria and and being extremely religious is just very different. We have very different lived experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised here as well, so I, there's also that difference in how they view people in the world and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I think I'd like to hear a little bit more about that as well how do you feel that experience is different for you coming from a Nigerian family versus a family that has generations that have been in the states here how does that impact that journey and what that's looked like yeah so a lot of the information I consume about being queer, the people that I look up to who kind of let those roads, those road, roadways or pathways of being queer in this country, they have people who've been here for, you know, for centuries and they've have this culture here. Um, it's queer gay culture. But, you know, you go back to Nigeria and that's not there. And so I think for me, it was trying to figure out what does queerness look like being a Nigerian where because of like colonialism, we've been told there's only really two genders and that's mm-hmm. not how we traditionally were back you know if you go back in history so right, right. it's it's been interesting because it's like I feel so supported in America and in the being here it, despite the terrible things that happen to LGBTQ people but I know that being if I was in Nigeria I couldn't even like be anywhere close to who I am outwardly here <laughs> yeah that experience, I think, gives me that. I, I suppose for that experience of kind of being both Nigerian and American, I feel like I want to lean more into 
those identities because I know that there are those who can't. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And okay, not to flip the script a little bit, Mm -hmm. but they're in America. So there's Yvonne on Insecure, who I follow on Instagram. And she is about as religious as I've ever seen uh, someone in the public sphere in a very long time. To the, she's a hilarious comedian. I think she's really an amazing actor. But mm-hmm. is that the level of religiousness that exists among the Nigerian culture, or is she is she sort of an anomaly? I mean, I I'd say that there are religious and non-religious folks, but when it comes to like our parents, you know, because our parents' generation, like we, me and her are in the same generation, they grew up really religious. Okay. And and Christianity, whether it's Catholicism, I grew up heavy like Catholic family, heavy Catholic background. And that's just like what they grew up with. So a lot of, you know, my parents' generation are heavily religious and they kind of try to instill that into you know your children you know you pass down what your values and what you think yeah. is worthwhile to your children of course so i i would say yes wow. like i i definitely had to grow up with every sunday we're going to church you know it's wednesdays. not wednesdays look we, we didn't have to do wednesdays <laughs> yeah wednesdays. <laughs> thank goodness but like she did wednesdays <laughs> <laughs> But no Sundays off for you. No, no Sundays off, and no. just you know, being a Catholic, pre- former Catholic, there's just the steps you go through. You know, you go yeah. through your confirmation, and then yep. all the things that I don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate how you also shared that, like that's also an impact of colonization, because prior to people coming to Nigeria and saying you need to be Christian, or you're going to be kind of damned to hell, right? that non-binary identities were just not even really thought twice about. It was just natural. It was just part of being, which is is interesting because that impact of colonization like tends to have stripped all of that from so many cultures, which is kind of hard to sit with sometimes that like now people are trying to be able to express themselves in that way. And I just love to kind of hear your thoughts on that because in a way that's kind of coming back to yourself through another layer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there isn't actually a lot of information about queer identities in across the continent of Africa and, mm-hmm. and what people used to practice because a lot of that was destroyed, a lot of the information was taken. Mm-hmm. And so I think when thinking like about like that lost, that information is kind of just lost to time. Like, mm-hmm not really knowing and understanding, having a good understanding of like what was there before and like how have we kind of changed now. I think it pushed me to try and find as much as information as I can. So I, I definitely yeah. try to do my research, whatever research like I have access to and, and look into that history and that background. Um, because we were there, you know, we're, we're, we're human, we're, <laughs> we're everywhere, <laughs> queer folks were everywhere, so it's right. just a matter of, like, what those specific, like, for example, the evil culture, what, how did we tackle that? I have no idea. Hmm. Um, and I think it's hard to kind of reconcile that with, like, what's going on, like, across the continent, and just specifically in Nigeria, of, you know, there's greater LGBTQ attacks and and you know folks are getting killed so it's 
I think sometimes if that information was there, we could even have a greater access to kind of have those conversations of like, why are we like this? Why do we think like this? Um, mm-hmm. And why are we like this as a, as a culture? And really just claim it as not something that happened, not something that it's ours, but something that we were taught. There's so many people who are um, benefiting from us agreeing to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so I think that anytime anyone challenges what we think is normal, whatever that is, then we begin to have to question who we are and why we are. And I think as queer people, we do that because we have to in order to survive. Mm -hmm. I cannot sit here thinking I'm going to hell and still be able to live tomorrow, right? Right. So at very early ages, we have to question the why. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because this is how I'm feeling, right? And so when we get to the point where we realize exactly who we are, we're very clear. And then you're looking around at other people like, why aren't you asking why? Well, mm-hmm. for right. them to ask why would then cause probably their whole world to feel like it's crumbling down around them and not know how to stand on just being, uh, respecting someone's humanity. Right. And I think that that is the biggest challenge. And not even just in culture, in any particular culture, but just in the world. In general, I could use that same analogy for politics Um, Mm -hmm. today. I could use that same analogy um, for religion and everything else. I think it just applies to people not knowing how to stand if they were to ask why and not being comfortable with the answer. Yeah, it takes work to to get to to the why. So much work. And, you know, when you're doing the work, you're not really, you uncover things you don't want to face and you have to face it. So, yeah, that's right takes a lot of unpacking it's right. a lot of layers to it right um and like for you you unpacked sexual orientation was that what you unpacked first and then the gender identity came after what was that process like for you kind of coming to realize both of those identities so i'd say that they were unpacked i guess together almost but they, they're on their parallel paths of unpacking <laughs> i just kind of reached to the sexuality first because that was more I think present and like who I'm attracted to and that was more of an out like that's something I have to interface with the world with in in a sense um yes there is some interfacing with like being non-binary but unless someone is like talking to me I'm kind of going through the world internally like I can be non-binary and not have to (laughs) I guess interact with others in a sense Mm -hmm. um but like with my sexuality it's like okay I'm clearly attracted to other women other people I consider myself technically pansexual so I had to come to that realization earlier um I think especially because at the time I came to the realization I knew I had a history of like interacting with multiple genders and multiple types of folks so I think that was a little bit more easier to grapple with um, then I'd say being non-binary because with that, like I said, I had a twin brother and mm-hmm. we were treated differently because I was, you know, I was the daughter. He was supposedly, you know, he was the son, the first son, you know? Mm-hmm. And so having those different roles and seeing the difference in treatment, there was already questions growing up. I was like, um, do I really want to be a girl because I maybe I want to be a boy because, you know, <laughs> boys there's just something better in terms of being 
like the child of my parents when you're a boy. So I was like, there's some benefits. Yeah, benefits there. I want those. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I think with that, there was already like some questioning. Like I didn't really feel like I fit either um, growing up, but I didn't really have the language for that and what that meant until I think I kind of grappled with my sexuality and then started learning more about, okay, wow, there's different, non-binary is a term that exists and applies and that's where I see myself versus I'm, I never really felt like a woman I don't really I don't really feel like a man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know that all too well mm-hmm. so I think yeah. kind of in term, coming to terms with that was like after my sexuality yeah but it was already something kind of simmering at the surface yeah yeah did you tell your family about both at the same time no, I told my family about my sexuality first because I had started dating a woman at the time that I was serious about. And I was like, oh, I guess I got to talk. I have to have this conversation. That always triggers it, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I guess I, I mean, want to say something now. Right. I mean, it was there. It's just I didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that starts the conversation with my family. And then with um, being like binary, I, I think that conversation happened after only because... I think, like, especially with, like, my parents, that's a harder concept to grasp. But with my siblings, it's, it's not necessarily so. Yeah. If you were in a room with other Nigerian children, right, of Igbo culture, mm-hmm. and you had the opportunity to tell them something mm-hmm. that some, you wish somebody would have told you, mm-hmm. what would it be? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> I think that I would tell them that who they were or who they taught they were, who they've been taught they are, is much bigger than they could imagine. Mm-hmm. And I, I would tell them that because I think that's like the start of kind of starting to question the knowledge we have around ourselves and where this knowledge come from and why are we like this, you know, that starting to question that. And I think it's important to kind of instill that idea of like what we know and the things that are kind of taught to us are, are due to these lineages and this history and all these implications that we don't really think of, but you are, you are beyond that and we are beyond that. We can be bigger and greater than who we're told we we are, I think, is what I'd say. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's it. I think yeah. that's beautiful. And this is and this is beyond queer stories. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Great. So beyond <laughs> what we're taught, right? That's <laughs> exactly. a really beautiful place to leave this. And is there anything that you want listeners to check out, whether it's personal stuff, community stuff, resources, anything you want to make sure people know about? I think I would like to leave listeners with an organization I think is doing great work in the community um, and just kind of plug that. So um, there's an organization called YEP, and I don't remember the acronyms. Eventually, it's Y-E-P-P. Youth Empowerment Performance Project. Yes, yes, that one. And I um, found out about them. I went to one of their events, and they do performance programming, and they teach like different types of arts for you know LGBTQ youth who are experiencing or have experienced homelessness in Chicago. 
And so if you are listening and you feel the need, please look them up and donate to them or support wherever you can, because I think that's a great, great opportunity to help out and and bring the arts and bring healing to LGBTQ youth. Yeah. Wonderful. Love Yep. Yes. Love and Bonsai. We'll tag them, link them so people can find them easy too in this awesome. episode. So look for that Perfect. in the description. Great. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having coming me. here and joining us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Glad I'm here. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by Beast Deadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at beastdeadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L.com. Beyond Queer Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to you all next week. Bye.